2: This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, we'll react to the news that Liverpool's owners are looking for new investment. Could the club possibly move into new hands in the near future? We'll also be talking about England's big six clubs after they failed to stop the Premier League. Discussing a radical overhaul of English football we will tell you exactly what that means. We'll also be talking about Spurs after their defeat in the EFL Cup to Nottingham Forest. And Antonio Conte saying Harry Kane is basically exhausted. What does that mean for his world? World Cup campaign. We'll ask what's going on at West Ham, and also Nathan Jones takes over at Southampton. What can we predict in his future? This is the game. Hello, welcome to the Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wizencroft, alongside Gregor Robertson. And Tom Roddy today loads for us to discuss. Let's begin with Liverpool, their owner Fenway Sports Group instructed bankers to sound out what potential buyers would pay for the club as it seeks new investment. The US Bank's Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley assisting with the process, although it's understood FSG, has no immediate plans to sell and views the development as purely exploratory at this stage. It's been reported in The Times by our chief sports reporter, Martin Ziegler, who joins us for the first portion of the game. Hi, Martin. Hi, guys. How are we doing? Very well. What's going on at Liverpool? Why is this happening right now?
3: So I think this is a um, uh, 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 something that's probably probably a result of what's happened over the last couple of years. So um, Project Big Picture and European Super League, both two big efforts reforming football, which Liverpool were squarely behind, both of which would have let them sell some of of their own TV rights for matches, and both of which collapsed. Um, So I think Liverpool's owners now in a situation, they're looking at Manchester City, whose sort of financial power become, getting bigger and bigger in every way, really. And thinking, you know, we can't compete. We've taken Liverpool as far as we can do we need to start considering an exit strategy?
2: How do you think, Martin, the Liverpool fans should react to, to this news? Should there be a feeling of concern over where the club's going?
3: I not mean, think, I mean, surely, every fan is going to have a degree of concern about who's going to be taking over their club. I mean, I don't think it's going to be a, a, another state um, like a Gulf state or something, because I, th- I think the, the the three big ones, have, they've got their their club already. Um, I can't see another one moving into that that area. So I think it's most likely to be a an American consortium. The Americans investors. Are I mean, we've seen with Chelsea, very, very keen on the Premier League, think there's still lots of potential for growth. So as sort of investment opportunity, that looks like the most likely thing if, if FSG do decide to cash their chips in. The fans were wondering what is what is this going to mean in terms of, you know, squad strengthening? That's what fans think about most. But we've seen with Chelsea, you know, Todd Bowley consortium came in, spent a huge amount of money in the transfer window. So it's whether someone who can speculate to accumulate. I guess is the is is the the key.
2: Tom, what do you think about the news regarding Liverpool this week? I wasn't
1: hugely surprised because of everything uh, Martin's just flagged, because of where they've what what we've seen in in the last couple of years you know we've got to the stage where clubs like liverpool despite you know, very very rich people billionaires being in charge it's still difficult for them to compete with state-backed clubs uh, uh kilian mbappe <laughs> spoke to liverpool about potentially going there at one point and it and he's, he's been public about speaking about that. And I'm not saying money was the motivation in not going and ending up staying at PSG. But in the end, Liverpool cannot compete with a club like Paris Saint-Germain with the financial backing they have from Qatar. They can't compete with Manchester City and what they have from Abu Dhabi. And of course, the with Newcastle coming now and the the, the Saudi Arabian money behind that, I, I always think back to, it really stuck out with me when they signed Alexander Isak because that was, I think it was a club record, right? £60 million. And Eddie Howe, his response to it at the time, one of the first things he said was re- regarding, I think it was Callum Wilson's injury. And he wasn't out for a long time uh, at all, but he said, naturally, we look to do this naturally and it's not, it, it wouldn't be natural net for any other club to suddenly spend a club record amount on a, a short term replacement injury, but that's what Newcastle have done. That's what Newcastle will be able to do from now on. And I think Liverpool's owners, it, it, they probably feel like they've hit a little something of a ceiling at the moment and seeing the valuation uh, of what, you know, Liverpool were valued by Forbes at £3.89 billion in May last year. And that was that was at the time when Chelsea's sale was going on. So to see that happen and to see the potential for, for what that club is worth must have been tempting to explore at the very least.
2: Gregor, everything that's been said so far, pretty clear, really, about where Liverpool stand. Um, I guess in terms of their football, they've put themselves in a position where they're back looking very appealing for those out there with a lot of money, as is the Premier League, which seems to get stronger. Again, American investment. I know there are American owners there already, but the prospect that's just been mentioned, again, for me, it comes back to this European Super League court case and whether one day we might see football change as a whole, because quite clearly... It's getting more and more backers the biggest clubs in particular you know not just here in, in Europe as well new owners coming in clearly they all are gearing up for something
4: well I think they'd see irrespective of whether we, we kind of go down that path to European Super League you still see potential for growth that's obviously the, their belief their firm belief that you know that football's still not the biggest sport in China India the US and there's room for growth there and they see it as a kind of blue chip. Product, so I think regardless obviously there'll be some owners, potential owners, and current owners still with one eye on the uh, what's going on in terms of the future of the European Super League. But I think Liverpool's owners, more than any, are well aware that their fans aren't going to have it, uh, so that's off the table for them. I, I agree with Tom. I think they probably do look at it now and think perhaps we have a bit of a ceiling in it. You know, they've spent, I think there will be 80 million on the new Anfield Road stand, which opens next year. Uh, another 50 odd million on a new training ground. So all the kind of infrastructure is probably done. The squad maybe is looking at in the next year or two, it probably needs a bit of a rebuild. That's more investment. And uh, their, their investment, initial investment, 300 odd million pounds when they bought the club uh, 12 years ago, has increased tenfold. Which is extraordinary. So, yeah, whether they're going to sell, you know, entirely or just seek investment to kind of, you know, cash in some of their ships remains to be seen. But uh, clearly, for all the reasons that have been described, they feel that now is a a moment for them to at least see some return on their investment.
2: How likely then, Martin, um, will we hear about those interesting? Are people queuing up?
3: I think the process has just started, but I think once you once you go once you take that step. It's difficult to step back from it, I think. Uh, I think there is a lot of appetite out there. And and that we saw with Chelsea, that people were sort of queuing up. And Liverpool, their global appeal is much, much bigger than Chelsea's. I mean, it was is one of the frustrations by I mean, we've had this sort of Manchester City's annual financial results announced this week. You know, their, their commercial income is significantly greater than both Manchester United's and Liverpool's, despite the fact that, you know, in terms of global fan bases, they, you know, those old established giants of the, of the English game are, are sort of, you know, that the, their global fan bases are much greater yet, you know, related party sponsorships, I guess, is, is, is a big reason why Manchester City have gotten to this position. And then Newcastle announcing this week that they're having an extra 70 million investment from the owners. So for all those reasons, with a lot of appetite, for buying Premier League clubs and with, I think people are thinking that the, the streaming giants are going to start turning towards football in, in, in a much bigger way that I think, yeah, this is, this is, this, I can't see, I would, I wouldn't be at all surprised if if we're talking in, in a year's time, Liverpool got new owners.
2: Wow. Okay. would be a big one. We'll look and wait and see, I guess, what happens with those developments. Um, there's more, I guess, discussion about money in football as well, uh, this week, Martin. England's big six clubs failing to hold a move by the Premier League, who are going to start discussions with the FA and EFL. Uh, over a radical overhaul of English football, it's reported in The Times. The top flight clubs voted by 14 to 6 on Tuesday to give the Premier League executive the mandate to start talks over the New Deal for football, which would result in about £170 million more per year being given to the EFL, uh, and parachute payments drastically cut as well. Tell me how this all came
3: about. So this is, um, there's been massive pressure, from mainly from the government, um about um, the Premier League needing to increase the amount of money it distributes to the, the rest of the of the football pyramid and especially to the the EFL, I think the Premier League said that they need to do they need to change do something and change it and change the the way the parachute payments op- um, operate. And so the, this has been sort of talked about for the last few months. On Tuesday, the Smaller and medium-sized clubs that said, "Right, we know, we need to get on with this. Take our offer to the FA and the EFL. We'll give 170 million in return. We want we want to make it easier to sign foreign players. We want to get rid of FA Cup replays altogether, and we want to make changes to the Carabao Cup so that if you're in Europe, um, you, you either you don't have to play or you field an under 21 side. So there's a sort of con- you know th- these are the, the contingencies. The big six – they didn't want to go ahead at, at that pace because there still hasn't been an agreement on how exactly that 170 million would be funded. I think there's an agreement that the top clubs should pay more than the bottom clubs, but the what they didn't, don't want is that if you're in the Champions League, you have to pay even greater sum of money towards that 170 million. That's what um, that's what the, the the big issue is with that. Um, but they were defeated. Um, they were If they'd had one more person voting with them, they would have been able to block it, but they weren't. So, yeah, it's, the, the talks are going to go ahead. Um, and, yeah, it, I think this is another sort of sign that the, the big six who ruled the roost for quite a long time are now being
2: pushed back. And it was the big six, was it, that were against it?
3: It was indeed, yeah.
2: <laughs> Naturally, yes. Okay. The new money the Premier League wants to be conditional on a number of factors, including the rules on buying overseas players being relaxed a little bit. Will all of their demands be met? I mean, are those demands even realistic in your mind?
3: I mean, I think the FA Cup replays probably is, because I think that's sort of... Uh, I, I, I think that, I think there's a general feeling that maybe they've had their day. And the Carabao Cup, I think that's probably up for grabs as well. I do think there's going to be a big battle over the over the work permits and governing body endorsements, as they're called. The FA concern that you know that they've gone into position now where clubs can't just buy anybody from the European Union because of Brexit. So they all incoming overseas players have to um, meet a criteria set on a on a point system. So, I think the FA doesn't want to get back to the position where you had clubs where you didn't have a single English qualified player, which, which happens fairly regularly, doesn't it? And they've been slightly alarmed although there's been an improvement in the the, the percentages since brexit of english players but it has dipped a bit this season so i don't think they will want to do anything which sort of dilutes that but i mean they might have to make it i think there may be a compromise they can make it a bit easier reduce the points but not as easy as the premier league clubs want it
4: gregor
2: what do you think about this big changes on the way possibly
4: yes um i'd be keen to know about the kind of how the the extra one hundred seventy million would be distributed, and also if how the how the kind of additional money, if the if parachute payments are drastically cut, how that will be distributed as well. I don't know, Martin. Do you have any sort of insight? Has there been any talks about? about how what the kind of distribution model might look like in the future
3: yeah so i think it would be a, a bit similar to the way the premier league does it is the um that it distributes its prize money to the it, it, it's sort of based on where you finish in the table so if say if you finish top you get 170 million and if you finish um, bottom you get 100 million so it's a sort of 1 to 1.7 ratio. And I think the sort of feeling is that they, they want to sort of, at least in the championship, that that should be a, a similar model. The funding should sort of be merit-based like that. But with it with still have an element of parachute payments, but not to the, the, the scale that they have now.
4: Because, I mean, that's, a, that's a, you know, you, in the grand scheme of things, you think 170 million is not, million's not a great deal. But when you include the sums that... Are given to a handful of clubs in in, in uh, parachute payments. It'd be quite an uptick for clubs in the Championship and below. So this is positive, and it's all a result of the the kind of tumult and turmoil that <laughs> that's that's gone on in, over the last few years. So, um, and I think it's positive to be honest that that we're seeing a bit of a pushback against the big six clubs and a kind of direction of travel where the there will be some more money filtering down the pyramid
2: I think that's important Gregor yeah and um, another part of this of course um, those big clubs not wanting to give a portion of what they earn in Europe either here and obviously that's a big debate like you say I think we all just want to see a better distribution model the parachute payments are you know ridiculous pretty much um, in terms of you know, leveling the competition when you go, when you get relegated. I mean, it's just such a huge boost and it definitely uh, skews the playing field. And, and, you know, as we've seen with the arguments from the start of the European Super League, I think fans want as level, realistically, as level a playing field as they can
1: get. Tom Roddy, what do you make of it? That was what stuck out to me, Hugh, was the uh, with the parachute payments we've seen in the, in the last few years. Uh, the 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 yo yoing of, of clubs so often, like West Brom and and Norwich and Watford, and this is meant to it's it's meant to help them to sort of cushion their fall from the Premier League, but really it gives them an unfair advantage over over other clubs, and it's it's so infrequent that we see clubs like Brentford come through with without it to be honest i I was interested martin with with your with your piece on this where where you wrote about if if one more club had voted against the plan at the meeting then it would have failed is there is there a lot of politics involved between the clubs trying to you know what were the were the top six or the big six trying to gain support from other clubs as, as part of the vote
3: yeah i don't think there was much campaigning by the big six i think that, um to try and get others on side i, I think they were just they argued their case in the meeting saying that they you know they, they thought it was they shouldn't go ahead and open the talks before they'd come to an agreement about how how the the money is going to be split up between the clubs but they i think people spoke fairly sort of vociferously against that and said, you know, we need to get on with it. They've been sort of messing around with this for too long. We can decide on the funding split later. Let's just get on and do it. And um, I think that carried the day. Well, clearly it carried the day, but the the big six weren't happy.
2: Martin Ziegler, thank you for being with us uh, on the game, giving us the download on those big, big stories so far this week. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, let's uh, take a look at some of what happened in midweek then. A few shocks in the EFL Cup, to be perfectly honest. Uh, One came at the city ground, Nottingham Forest, with a 2-0 victory over Tottenham Hotspur. I mean, the story of the evening, not necessarily how Tottenham played. I mean, we've spoken about them so much recently on the podcast And once again, they went behind. This time, they couldn't recover. And it's been a similar story for the past sort of three or four weeks with Tottenham, really. But anyway, one headline that came out of it, the Tottenham boss Antonio Conte saying, Harry Kane's really, really tired. Okay, that's after he came off uh, in the second half. He says it was a problem of tiredness. Um, He did stress that Harry Kane would be fine. But he says... It's only fatigue, but it's normal because Harry's played every game. And yes, when you look at the facts, Kane made his 21st straight start for Spurs in that game, coming off after 59 minutes. Is he a little bit jaded? Should England fans be worried as we prepare to go to the World Cup in Air-conditioned stadiums, but still a very hot Qatar. Um, what do you think about it, Tom?
1: Yes, I think
4: I think doesn't sound convinced there, Tom. It <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: It's it's a bit of a worry considering Tottenham have a game this weekend as well. I mean, the the thing with with Conte is that most people most people listening to this, not everyone on this. Uh, podcast will care about um, England, uh, England's form at the World Cup. So the the focus is on um, is on Kane and and sort of duty of, of care and things like that. But Antonio Conte's job is to is to manage Tottenham Hotspur to get the to get the best out of Tottenham, and he has he has he has run Kane absolutely ragged. I mean, he's played I think it's twelve games in five and a half weeks, and. I thought the most kind of worrying part was the fact he said the day before before the Nottingham Forest game, Kane had to stop because he was just absolutely knackered. And yet he plays in yesterday's game as well. Uh, I was speaking to a former player who um, worked under... Conte at Chelsea the other day and he we, we all know kind of Conte's intensity and everything but he's described it as three seasons one season would be like three seasons in one that's that's what it's like and and personally I've never seen Kane look as fit as he does right now I'd love to know his sort of body fat statistics because he, he just looks so lean going into this World Cup but the interesting thing and, and it's kind of touching wood right now but the interesting thing is that he's kane's been working with dr alejandro clarico for the past three years who's a canadian-based spanish sports medicine specialist who kane employs privately to work with him tottenham know about it england know about it but the purpose was to work on his ankles and his hamstring problems that were really sort of blighting his his domestic seasons and also uh, moment you know Cane and ankles is a, a two words that England fans just fear the most. But that working with Dr Clarico seems to have resolved that a little bit. But you can't you you can't really deal with fatigue as much. And of course, with Tottenham's injury issues, Conte's just relied on him and relied on him and relied on him and. that'll be a worry to Southgate because England have a few really key players going into this world cup, but Kane would be in the top three, if not, if not the top one in truth and hearing these stories on the eve of the world cup about him having to be taken off because he's so tired, him having to stop training because he's so tired will be a concern.
4: I thought that the, some of Conte's quotes were quite strange, to be honest. I, I agreed that one about a soft training session uh, at one point having to stop to recover energy. I, I don't see—is this Conte trying to kind of? I don't know. We spoke we spoke last week about how he's he's always got ulterior motives when he's speaking. Is he trying to underline the fact that he's not got any other striker once again, but kind of piquing the anxiety of a nation at the same time? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> he's but even there's even more that kind of felt strange to me. He said other. Other players, maybe they could tell me, I'm tired. I don't want to play and help the team. Another could be selfish and think for himself because in one week, they have to play the World Cup. Instead, Harry Harry Kane showed me he's a really good man. There's also this thing in football where you're kind of rewarded for just absolutely ploughing yourself into the ground. He's a good man, Harry, you know? (laughs) Whereas if he'd said to me, I'm tired, then, you know, he would have been weak. No, I mean, if he's really... Really tired, and he's a week week away from the World Cup. Then I'm not really sure why he's playing in the in the Carabao Cup. To be brutally honest, Tom said, as Tom said, it's 12 games in 39 days. That, if my math is right, makes it 3.25 games a week, which is a lot. On the flip side, I wouldn't get too worried about it because he's been brilliant. He's not looked he's not looked fatigued or tired at any point. And you know, I think Conte's come out and said this partly because of some truth and partly because, as I say, he wants to make it clear that. His squad is weak and thin on the ground and that's why he's had, his team is looking so jaded at the moment. So I wouldn't be too too worried about it and Harry Kane will, I'm sure, find deep reserves to, to play his best in the World Cup.
2: I'd be concerned as you an would. England fan. As an England fan, yeah, well, listen, we don't get the best out of Harry Kane in an England shirt anyway. That's the thing. You know every time you watch England play and yes I get it he scores the goals because he takes the penalties and he's the man in the 6 yard box when we need him to be but generally speaking you know in an England shirt for a while you don't see the force that Harry Kane has been at times for Spurs maybe that's because you know when we play for when he plays for England maybe there's just more of a focus in international football on stopping him because he's such a big name like we say he's the one isn't he in terms of Um, the importance in England's team. But um, unless he's at his max, I don't see us getting the cane that we had at the previous World Cup this time around. Part of that is because of the style of football. I just don't see how we get the best out of a load of our players, not just him. You know, he's been good this season. Uh, You know, he's had a good year. But if a week before the World Cup, the words fatigue are being mentioned and stopping in training sessions, well, that doesn't, that's not great. You know, and that, you know, in terms of muscular injuries and stuff like that, they're not too far around the corner. Now, it suggests that Southgate and England are going to have to manage Kane's fitness throughout a major tournament, which isn't great. I'm not sure it does.
4: I said it suggests, uh-huh.
2: but it does suggest that he took Harry Kane off after an hour when he was 2-0 down. So even he's managing him, Antonio Conte.
4: Well, he's not managed him, has he?
2: but but you're telling me that if he was fine 2-0 down needing to come back into a game cup game the player that you need on the pitch at that point is Harry Kane so he's clearly managed him by taking him off after 15, 59 minutes
4: yeah and he wanted to tell the world about it as well so I, <laughs> like, as I say I mean, we watched him against Marseille and he was outstanding in the second half in particular he, he, he was dropping deep he was rolling challenges he was bombing forward he was trying to get on the end of of crosses, he he's not looked fatigued. He's got his best goal scoring start to a season in his career. Yes, it's it's a build up and it's like a cumulative effect, and he might have been tired in trading and he might have felt tired. You know, maybe have been touch and go from to play in this game. If that's the case, he shouldn't have played. But uh, you know, I think uh, you'd much rather have have a bit of fatigue when he can have a rest than have an ankle issue again or something like that so I, I personally I wouldn't be too worried and I think that we'll be managing all of the players workloads in the eight days or whatever it is between the season ending sorry well, the yeah. season breaking and
1: starting yeah. that's a point game. that's a good point that's, that is a good point I think Gregor's right about um, it, it, it is the Conte way there are huge similarities between him and, and Jose Mourinho in terms of the 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 not only the kind of Hidden public messages, but also the um, the messages to his squad as well, and it just makes you wonder whether there are there were were players who were of who made themselves unavailable for that game, who he thought should have been available, were fit and could have been involved. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, the other side to this is is the is the fatigue, the the clear fatigue that that Kane has got, and th- this is this is. A, a point that could probably be made plenty of times on on the podcast and in a lot of the articles that we write leading up to this World Cup and probably through the World Cup but it this story is another one that kind of feeds into the, the nonsense of the timing of this World Cup because again he's he's played 12 games in five and a half weeks but he's had to play. Twelve games in five and a half weeks because that's been Tottenham's schedule. It could be thirteen games in six weeks, and then with a weeks a week to recover before starting the World Cup. And we, you only have to look at the list of injuries or, or even just injury scares that are racking up to to big names you know, seen in the last week: Reece James, Ben Chilwell, Mane, Son. Timo Werner's out. Pogba, Kante. There's just so many who are being whose whose tournament is is over before it starts, and maybe it would have happened with with a summer World Cup anyway. But it it just all feels like. It's a. Da- it was always going to be a dangerous scenario. There were always going to be injuries. We have been predicting it for as long as this tournament was scheduled for the winter, and we saw the amount of games that were leading up into it.
4: It's a disgrace. Like we 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 see this more. You know, it's becoming more and more clear. I also I just but we've mentioned that many many times now, and I'm sure we'll speak about it more. The one thing I've just it's just kind of striking me is I wonder if this year this season might be the straw that breaks the camel's back for the flares. There might be a, a kind of collective voice that is found in the fixture madness of the season and players who've missed World Cups and players who are on their last legs by the end of the season. And they might actually find a voice and say something about it and say, look, this is, this needs to, needs to change.
2: I think so, because I think there's a cumulative effect here as well, not just with this season and and how the games are stacked up, but obviously, you know, the short break that they had after the resumption in lockdown, going straight through, even with the Nations League in the summer, you know, so many games stacked up, players coming into the season. I don't think there's ever been a season that I've said about so many players in the first couple of months of the season that they look tired. But I think that has been the case with some big names, in, in certainly in the Premier League, who just look knackered. So I think you're right, Gregor. I think that conversation will grow and grow this season. But anyway, yeah, Harry Kane, hopefully, fingers crossed for England fans, is in a better place than his manager made out last night as we get to that first game against Iran not too far away now. Let's talk about West Ham United next. We've been wanting to talk about West Ham for the last couple of weeks. This is just the right moment, okay, Hammers fans? We haven't been ignoring you. hate to break the news. I'm sure you know it. Uh, Blackburn Rovers going into the last 16 of the Carabao Cup after they beat West Ham 10-9 in a penalty shootout. So we're not going to criticise West Ham too much. The game finished 2-all, you know, 19 penalties, you know. But I think going out of the Cup to a championship side for most of the fans with another sign of things just not being quite right with David Moyes and his team, Although they've won six games out of six in the Europa Conference League and topped their group, they have lost eight of their 14 Premier League games. They're 15th in the table. There were boos at the end of their defeat by Crystal Palace last weekend. Tom Roddy, I'm going to start with you. How do you gauge the situation at West Ham right now? Are there big issues for David Moyes?
1: Yes, there are. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, there are a lot of teams. This this World Cup is going to be... A, a benefit to clubs like West Ham and to uh, Chelsea and and Southampton, teams that are, are, are going into it in a in a poor, a relatively poor run of form, and need a bit of a, a break um, to reset. But at the same time, I mean, West Ham have lost to Man, uh, Man United, uh, Liverpool, uh, and obviously the draw at, at Southampton in October as well, before the Palace result on Sunday, which which was a real damning and and, and painful defeat, isn't it? Right at the end of, of a game. But I, I thought the most ugly moment was Moyes being booed for a decision to remove Saeed Rama rather than the result or the performances. When a manager's getting booed for... Changes he's making, I think that feeds into a, a, a mood of a club at the at the time, rather than just being disappointed at the end of a game. And of course, I think the difficulty is 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 around the context involved with West Ham, because of course it was a it was a big big summer there, a lot of money spent. You've got Pakita coming in, Scamacca, uh, Corne, Emerson. There were there were quite a few players that were brought in and for a, for a significant money. And the problem is you get expectation, don't you? With, with, with clubs that can be, or had been relatively frugal. I mean, what Moyes achieved getting European football at West Ham, uh, we were talking about Liverpool earlier and hitting a ceiling. It, It felt like West Ham hit a ceiling a little bit. And, when a club like west ham then spends a load of money you expect it to all to work immediately and in football the unforgiving world of football perhaps it should do perhaps there is the pressure there but but you you still don't know about players having to settle in a, a team having to evolve and uh, settle into a, a a rhythm with a new coach, um, sorry, with new players, and really fitting in in together. It, it it can take time, and it's. I don't think the form has been terrible. Far from it, but it it the expectations have just lifted. And when you think where what Moyes took over there to where they have been in the last year, it, it, it's a very impressive job. And I, th- I think they'll appreciate the, he will appreciate the the World Cup break to, so long as there's no injuries to to really reset there.
4: I think Moyes is happy to remind everyone as well that, you know, what he inherited and what West Ham have done in terms of making Europe over the last two seasons. And he has a point in that. But as Tom has said, spent £165 million in the summer. And the problem is there's still not, they're not really, although they've, you know, despite having signed two really big, attack-minded players in Paqueta and Scamacha, they've still not looked like much of a kind of coherent attacking force. Um, and you know, part of that's been about getting them on the pitch together. But they've they've only scored twelve goals in the Premier League in fourteen games, which is the fourth fewest in the division. And it's a like, there's a kind of there's some kind of, although Scamacha's as impressed in flashes, there are some parallels. <laughs> With Sebastian Haller, and that he looked isolated a lot of the time um, up up front for West Ham. They kind of quite a you know, quite a conservative team, really. They sit back and and look to play in the break, and that's why Antonio, with his pace and his and his strength and powerful running, has been such a force for West Ham up front. Whereas a big target man is not really the same. Doesn't have they need players around them? So there are kind of some structural issues like that as well. It's also been a peculiar season for them, and that they had such a bad start. And then I remember I went to I've covered quite a lot of their European games, and and after the, the win against uh, Silkeborg a few weeks ago, Moy said something after the match that kind of like really jarred me. So we've played I think in 15 games of 1-10, drawn two and lost three, and you go hang on a minute, that's that's not a bad bad old record, <laughs> and then, but clearly that includes half a dozen. Europa Conference League games. He's been able to put a spin on things that has looked quite positive at times, and they have been good in Europe, but they're playing in Europe's third tier, and their form in the Premier League, by uh, you know, apart from little kind of little flurry of two po- two back to back wins against uh, Wolves and Fulham, has been poor. And I actually think probably out of all the clubs in the Premier League, West Ham are the team who who could who would relish a win the most before the World Cup because they're two points above the drop zone they're playing less to who they're tied tied them 14 points with a win for both of those clubs but I think West Ham in particular considering the run they've been on um, would be most welcome before the World Cup yeah
2: I, I think West Ham United at the moment is a squad a collection of um, players at different stages and you just think if Moyes can you know mould them into what he wants the, the new players that have come in into the squads I, I think they'll be fine but I I was talking to two West Ham fans about this yesterday at a Times Plus event, and check check it out on the Times app, by the way. But um, <laughs> and they were basically saying, you know, my best. I I said to them, my best mate's a West Ham fan, and after the game at the weekend, he says he thinks, you know, it's it's going towards that that point for Moyes that. You know, he's not going to return basically, and you know, the downhill trend will continue. And the West Ham fans I spoke to last night were completely the opposite. And I just remarked to them look, this is sometimes expectation distorts reality, and the last two years probably distort in a lot of West Ham fans' minds where they should be, similar to when, and I'm not saying they're two clubs of the same size, but when Graham Potter was booed by Brighton fans because Mm -hmm. expectation changes very, very quickly in football when you've been as successful as a club like West Ham has been over the last couple of seasons. Um, The only thing I'd say about them, and I'm still surprised by it, is I don't think they cope well after European games. Like, they haven't yet dealt with being a Thursday night side. So if they need no. new investment to become a, you know, to have a second team, if you like, for Thursday nights. Well, they have, I think, you
4: They have. Well, I, I understand it can still have an effect because the players yeah. still, until the, until the last game, they all still travel. They all still mm. often come on. They've often had to come on and wait in the second half to win games. But they have they've made nine, ten changes almost every game. So it's not, you know, they have actually got quite a, you know, I was at I was at the Blackburn game last night, and although they made they made eleven changes, so you know Antonio Conte can can wind his neck in. <laughs> like he could have he could have made the changes if he wanted to. He might have to delve into the into the into the academy, but every manager can do it, and many do. So Moyes and um, actually Blackburn did as well. The Championship club made eleven changes, so it was yeah. a full twenty-two new players on the pitch from the weekend. Um,
1: I'd like to see you say that to Conte, Gregor.
4: <laughs> yeah, I should. Sure well. <laughs> But it's, it's, it's a fair point. The Contes, you know, basically played a, his Premier League team. That was a choice. Mm. Anyway, back to West Ham. They, they, have, they have got quite a strong squad now. You, you, although they made those changes uh, for the Blackburn game, it still looked like there's still a lot of players who are recognisable from Premier League games. So I think the thing that's going to be a weight on Moyes' back now is that the investment, yes, it's raised expectations, but it's kind of... Everyone just wants to see a step forward. I think they expect to see a step forward. It doesn't have to be a huge step forward, but they expect to see a step forward. And at the moment, they've taken a step backwards.
1: I think it's the uh, it's the it's the Southgate conundrum slightly as well, where as we've said, the expectations have have risen. It's not always the most exciting football, and if you look at West Ham West Ham's results, they don't you know they don't get battered. Um, but I think it's this. This mix between the the expectation being being suddenly so high after after threatening for Europe, you know, there was that season where we were constantly talking about whether West Ham could hold on and actually stay into the. Champions League and now they're in the Conference League and there's that that slight regression back but being involved in European f- football is huge for West Ham so I think it's a mix between the expectations being high and probably just people getting a bit bored as well it just and I, and I don't mean that about the football it's partially about the football but maybe a little bit with Moyes as well in the same way England fans get have got a little bit bored with Southgate f- football the life expectancy of of a manager in premier league football is is 18 months now it's it's a cycle and and i think people just expect this change all the time
2: yeah 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 it is the state of football if you like but i think he needs to avoid defeats i mean draws they drew a lot of games last year you can maybe get away with, but if they continue to lose in the Premier League at the rate they have been, it's going to be a terrible season, and I think that would be the difference between David Moyes staying or not. But, yeah, we will see.
0: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress.
1: Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt.
0: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care.
2: Let's move on. Plenty still for us to discuss in terms of managerial changes. One in, one out, we uh, think mentioned Ralph Hasenhutel lost his job and spoke a little bit about him. Well, Southampton has confirmed that his replacement is Nathan Jones of Luton Town, who I know we also discussed. The Welshman has left the championship side, Luton Town, signed a three and a half year contract. He said, I wanted to manage in the Premier League. I've dreamt of that since I became a coach. But this club in particular, because of how it's run, because of the structure, because of how they look deeper than just results, really appeals to me. Actually, with the squad he's got at the moment, hopefully they will look deeper than results because it could be a very difficult start for Nathan Jones in the Premier League. I think we... Those of us that have seen him can can rate him very highly. The job that he did at Stoke City was a difficult one, but I think what he's done at Luton Town has been amazing. What kind of impact, Gregor, can he make at Southampton?
4: Well, he's he's certainly got energy and passion, <laughs> and he's bristling with kind of zeal and intensity. He's he is a he is a a very intense character, and I think, generally speaking, that's rubbed off on his. On his team at Luton, as you say, Stoke. He won six of thirty-eight games. That was a kind of a real blow for him because that was a big move—a team that would had had big money in the, in champ, championship terms and a big step up from from Luton in in uh, financial terms. But what he's done at Luton has been remarkable. He probably in the time since he's been a manager, in the top three kind of jobs of any manager in the football league, I think. Part of that is because he's he's worked for a, one of the best run clubs in in the country. Everyone's on the same page. Very frugal, but shrewd investment and, and a lot of development of players, young players. So that I think probably is where Southampton is seeing some synergy and and he, he's he's obviously held talks and and felt that it's going to be a good fit. That I, that quote you you read out you kind of leapt out at me as well the fact that they look deeper than just results and clearly this is a club with uh, Rasmus Ankersen, once of Brentford as part of their ownership group now you know that kind of makes you think as well that this could be a canny move it, it's, it is a risk there's no doubt because people will always look at a Premier League club who, who, look, who delves into the championship for a manager when they're in a really difficult position who's unproven at the level and we'll say it's a risk. He is one of the the brightest managers outside the premier league, despite what happened at Stoke. And he will not be short of energy and enthusiasm and kind of willpower to drag Southampton up to a higher, higher place in the table. And as I say, it's going to work at developing young players at Luton town, James Justin, for example, Jack Stacey who's at Bournemouth and kind of picking out rough diamonds and polishing them up with some senior players as well actually Henry Lansbury is a player who's flourishing there just now in the twilight years of his career I don't know I'm excited by it I'm excited by it I, I can't, it's very hard to tell how it's going to go because as I say the Stoke thing is the one thing that kind of makes you hesitate but I'm I'm excited I'm always pleased when anyone from the championship gets a gets offered a Premier League job and he's been one of the best for a number of years.
2: Yeah, he has been. Still a risk for Southampton. I've got to say, he's going to have to take it easy on the top line for at least the first year until some of that Saints money <laughs> hits the bank because uh, there's going to be some fines coming his way if, uh, if he's as passionate as he is in the games that we see in the championship. Um, Yeah, he will be very entertaining, not just there, but with his words as well in press conferences and and post-match interviews and stuff. He is a a really strong character, big character, great for him and his family that he's taken the Southampton job, but he's a risk. He is a risk because of course he hasn't managed yet at this level. And I, You know, I just wonder if this club can handle where he might take them. And that might be down. I hate to say that I'm confident in his abilities, but it's not a strong squad at Southampton. They've taken a risk. Like you say, I think it's a numbers-based recruitment model. And some of those young players could well be fantastic in the future but this season looks already like it could be a very very difficult one for them could they manage that they've been there before they've gone all the way down to league 1 in the past tom is this something that this ownership group this fan
1: base can take yeah i guess so yeah i don't think <laughs> i don't think the appointment is for for those purposes uh, it's it is a risk but i think it's quite a ref- refreshing risk and i thought it was an interesting Appointment as well. It's it's the first of the new ownerships, and we've seen down the years at, at Southampton them hire from abroad. Uh, Hasan Hütel obviously coming from from Leipzig, um, and Pochettino, Komen, guys who had experience of big leagues. On the continent whereas this is a is a slight change in direction of that and i i sort of see the the fingertips of guys like or fingerprints of guys like um rasmus Ankerson who who was at brentford before and the co-director of football there and, and very into the the data side i see them looking a step ahead in in the way Brentford did as a whole in the way Brighton had have and did with with Graham Potter looking to the the league below and up and coming coaches instead of the 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 merry go round that that we had for quite a few years when you get sackings at this this time of the season and when you, you guys have touched on the the intensity of nathan jones um and it, which, which isn't you know ralph hassenhutl was too but there are there are some brilliant stories about nathan jones nail biting bleeding after nail biting hi, highly strung guy you know <laughs> things i he was an assistant to oscar garcia at brighton nova albion when um i was a, a, a young uh, Fresh faced student <laughs> across the road. Um, long time ago, it, a long, long time ago, <laughs> and um, I just—he was the one who who stood out to me. Totally sitting in the in the first time I'd ever kind of sat behind a, a dugout, had that kind of view. He was the one who totally stood out, and the relationship that he had with the players was far more than what uh, far more than what uh, Oscar Garcia had sometimes that's sometimes that's how a number one and a number two work that you have the number two has that close relationship and the number one makes the the hard decisions but he has so far at luton anyway he's transferred those skills to a to a team He's he's got a squad of players on on board with him and because of the way it ended at Southampton for Hassan Hootelin and the he'd lost in the in that horrible cliche he had lost the dressing room and for quite some time. So I think that new fresh voice will I think we'll see an immediate improvement there, to be honest.
4: One thing that, that that's uh, interesting to me is that he's taken Chris Cohen and Alan Sheehan with him as part of his background staff and they're they're two young, fairly inexperienced coaches. Alan Sheehan only retired. I've played against Alan Sheehan many times in the lower leagues. He's played in Notts County for a long time and then Luton. He only retired quite, quite recently. And Chris Cohen was at Nottingham Forest for a long time. has been a coach for a, a few years. Joined him, I think, 18 months ago um, from Nottingham Forest Academy. As I say, they're they're both in their late 30s. And he's for, throughout his career, uh, Jones's career, he's had two big mentors in Paul Hart and... Mick Hartford and I don't think either of them are coming with him so he might need to find someone else with a bit of experience perhaps from that level as well uh, to to join his coaching staff in, in the fullness of time but they, they've been very important figures for him at, at Lewentown uh, experienced and as I say mentors for him so um, it'll be interesting to see who who else he, ad- he adds to a very as I say young and inexperienced
2: Well, yes, he, uh, I think, will need some of that because it's not an easy start for him. Uh, Only one game before the break, Liverpool away at Anfield. He then returns with a game at home against Brighton. So it will be difficult for him this start. And of course, he needs to turn around results very, very quickly. But we wish Nathan Jones the best at Southampton. Of course we do. And listen, to all of you that have listened, thank you for sticking with us. We'll be back with you on Monday. And we also have... Two special preview programs, uh, podcasts to come ahead of the World Cup alright on one of them we will look at England's and the home nation's chances we'll talk about uh, some of the political ramifications and on the other we'll look at some of the dark horses and other nations and players that we're looking forward to seeing as, as well as some of our World Cup memories alongside Tony Castorino who played of course at two uh, of those tournaments um, listen so make sure you look out for those hit your notifications button make sure you're subscribed you can also uh, stay along with the game at the times.co.uk forward snastic game. We'll see you on Monday. The World Cup's almost here. Take care.